All right, good morning, everybody. As always, I'm glad to see you this morning, and as always, I hope you have your Bible with you, and that you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one somewhere near you, in the pew rack, in front of you, behind you, maybe below you. Um, grab a Bible, snuggle up next to someone who has a Bible so you can study God's Word together, read it along with us as we study together. Last week, we moved into the body of the letter of 2 Corinthians Uh, And to be honest, it was tough sledding for the preacher, especially since the last couple of weeks before that had been so relatable and clear and applicable to our lives. To come out of that into a passage that seems complicated, uh, it's definitely less familiar, maybe less relatable, and at points perhaps unclear. Uh, It felt to me like it killed some momentum that we had. In fact, I felt that way even coming into last weekend. I told some guys think this is a dud and then on the way home I thought that was a dud and then Monday morning I tried to listen to it like I usually do uh, on Monday morning for review and it wasn't on the website and I thought oh thank you Lord (laughs) I was talking to some guys about all of this last week last week's text and particularly our commitment to expositional preaching here at First Baptist Church, and I basically said to these guys, unless you're committed to preach through the entire Bible, uh, the verses that we covered last week would never get preached. Um, and in that conversation, Pastor Dylan reminded me that even Peter says, some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. And so we're in good company, uh, maybe with the Apostle Peter, as he talks about Paul, and last week proved that to be true. But listen, hear me clearly here. Difficult as those verses were last week, they are verses that came out of God's mouth. They are breathed out of his mouth, and they are profitable to us. They are good for us, necessary for us. He tells us that all of his word, in fact, is profitable to us, including what we studied last week. And I have seen this week the profitability of what we talked about last week play out. As I had some conversations with guys in various positions of responsibility and leadership who struggle with opposition, they struggle with criticism, they struggle even with accusations sometimes. And so last week's text was helpful to see how important it is in those positions to have a clear conscience, how important it is and essential to live with holiness, and how growth and understanding leads to mutual respect and mutual appreciation. All of those things were in the text last week uh, and flow out of that difficult text and were helpful, and it was good to have those conversations. Now, I'd like to say that this week's text is easier, but it's not. In fact, in some ways, it's more difficult than last week. Because last week, Paul was giving this very general defense of his character, general defense of his integrity and his ministry. This week is very specific. It's a very specific defense of his actions regarding a change in his travel plans. And so we have to do some work right up front to kind of reverse engineer what the problem was, what what, what the controversy itself actually was, and then try to understand his explanation of why he changed his travel plans Uh, And his explanation is really foreign to us. His defense is really foreign to us. Evidently, first century Middle Easterners settled matters differently than we do today, uh, especially when one of the people involved in this has apostolic authority. Um, So some of this is a little bit difficult for us to relate to. Yet, despite the difficulty this week, there are some very relatable and applicable principles in the text this week. In fact, I'm probably going to say a hundred times today, this happens all the time around here. This kind of stuff happens all the time in this local church, in our relationships with one another, and in all kinds of local churches. So, just like last week, it may be difficult, 
um, but it's also really helpful to us if we give it the proper attention, and we intend to do that today. So read with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 12 where we, where we were last week and read on through verse 22. We'll look closely at verses uh, 15 to 22 today. This is God's word. Don't forget that. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you be helped on my way on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Verse 18, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to understand and apply your word today. Use your word to conform us to the image of Christ. Teach us to be people who are faithful, trustworthy, and dependable. Teach us to be people whose yes is yes and no is no. Give us a love for one another that assumes the best and not the worst. Open our eyes to the strategies of the enemy who seeks to divide us, to distract us. Remind us that he comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And remind us that the Lord Jesus came to give us life, abundant life together. Remind us of your unfailing faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness, O God, our Father. Remind us of your utter trustworthiness and your goodness to us in Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. So first part of my notes today, I have titled, Where's the Beef? Where's the Beef? Because the first thing we need to try to do today is reconstruct the problem. Evidently, some in the church have been and perhaps still are extremely upset that Paul has changed his travels, travel plans and hasn't visited them as they expected. He closed out 1 Corinthians with a heads up about his intention to come to them again in the future. Look at this text. You may uh, look on the screen or turn over a page to 1 Corinthians 16. Start reading in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed to the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, I will, they will go with me. But I will come to you, look at this, verse 5. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia. For I'm going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter 
so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So that's the end of 1 Corinthians. At the end of that letter, Paul communicates his intention to come to them after Pentecost on his way back from Jerusalem in order to spend the winter with them, right? To spend some significant time. But our text today that we just read in 2 Corinthians is different from that, right? It's not the same plan that he's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15, when he says, In this confidence I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. So evidently, his plan changed somewhere between, between those two letters, and they were made aware of this. How they were made aware of this change of plans, I don't really know. Maybe by one of the visits from his representatives. Maybe he sent them a letter. I don't know how they know the plans changed, but at some point the plans changed, and they expected him, Paul, to stop twice in Corinth on his trip to Macedonia. Once on the way there and once on the way back. And let me just pause here and say, it doesn't seem like they're upset with this change of plans, right? There is a change of plans here in that he, in, he told them I was going to visit you once. Then at some point he said, actually, I'm going to visit you twice, once on the way and once on the way back. And nobody seems upset with that change of plans. Why? Because it benefits them. It benefits them. So they're not upset by that change of plans. But as we read through this, it doesn't seem to happen either as he described it in 1 Corinthians 16 or as he describes it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He doesn't seem to make those visits. He does, however, make an unannounced visit to Corinth that we know of as the painful visit, right? And that goes terribly. He does come to visit them, and it goes terribly. And it seems that this awful experience in the painful visit is the catalyst for his not stopping on his way to Macedonia or from Macedonia. The question in my mind, though, is how do they know about this change of plans? How do they know he hasn't fulfilled what he said he was going to fulfill? Well, maybe because winter comes and goes and they don't see him. Did you catch that in 1 Corinthians? He said, maybe I'll even spend the winter with you. And winter comes and winter goes and we've got no Paul. Maybe Titus told him that he wasn't, told them that he wasn't coming when he visited and delivered that severe letter. You remember this? After the painful visit, Paul writes a severe letter calling them to repentance and it's delivered by Titus. And maybe Titus says, hey, those, those plans that Paul told you about, it's not going to happen because of what happened when he visited you and it went so terribly. I'm not exactly sure how they found out about this change of plans, but the bottom line is they are torqued about it. They are extremely upset that he has not kept his word, but why? We need to spend some time questioning, why are they so upset? These travel plans have changed. They found out about it and they are really, really upset. Should they be? Should they be as upset as they evidently are? Don't travel plans change? I would present to you that it's common for travel plans to change. That the change in his plans are a common occurrence. That's certainly the case in our, days, our day, right? How, how many of you have planned to travel someplace and had to make an adjustment at the last minute? How many different reasons might there be for that adjustment at the last minute? A thousand different reasons, right? Plans change. That's just the way it goes. And if that's the way it goes in our day with all of our modern technology and travel abilities, how much more would plans change in the first century when people are traveling globally, it would seem, at this point? 
Plans change. It's common. It's a common occurrence. Scripture actually reveals a number of times when Paul's travel plans change. Look at Acts chapter 16. Actually, I'm not going to read that whole text to you, but I'll give you the bottom line. Paul had no intention to go to Macedonia, and he had a dream, and a dude said, come to Macedonia, and he went to Macedonia. All right? He wasn't planning to go there, but he ended up going there, and great work happened because he heeded that Macedonian call. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is a little shorter text. I will read it to you. It says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered us. Paul says, I really wanted to see you and not spend a short amount of time with you. I really wanted to come and visit you. I, Paul, more than once wanted to come see you, but... Those plans change. Why? He says there, because Satan hindered us. I don't know exactly what that looks like. Maybe it looks like Delta Airlines, you know, canceling your flight. Satan hindered you. I don't know what it looks like. But the travel plans changed. And in Romans chapter 1, the plans change also. He says in verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that, I, that often I plan to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under, under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's like, I want to come see you. I've often planned to come see you, but it hadn't happened yet. Those plans change. I want you to see that Paul's travel plans changing is a common occurrence. It's also a minor occurrence. Is this change in Paul's travel plans the end of the world for the Corinthians? Surely not. It's a minor issue. It's a minor issue. It's not like Paul has neglected these people, has he? Would anyone in their right mind say Paul has neglected the church of Corinth? No, not if we understand that when he planted the church, he spent a year and a half there. A year and a half he spent teaching them and discipling and proclaiming the gospel in their city. And after he left, he wrote multiple letters, at least three letters before what we are studying here in 2 Corinthians. He was engaged with them from a distance. And he had sent representatives he had sent Timothy once and Titus once and who knows who else he may have sent to visit them that we don't have a record of. And he made this flying trip to see them that was unannounced, unscheduled, and went terribly wrong. But when he found out that things had gone awry in Corinth, it seems like Paul dropped everything and went to visit them. And yet they ran him out of town on that day. My question is, have they forgotten all of that? in light of his adjusted itinerary? Have they forgotten all of Paul's faithful service to them in light of the fact that his travel plans changed? It was a minor issue and a common occurrence, and yet they are extremely upset. The bottom line is someone has seized what seems to be a minor and common disruption to cast doubt on Paul's entire character and his entire ministry. That's the leap that they are making. That's the, that's the leap that the Corinthians are making here. He didn't keep his word. He said he was going to come visit you, and he hasn't come visited you. He said he was going to come twice, in fact, and he hasn't. He hasn't kept his word. He let you down. You can't trust him. In fact, you can't trust anything about him. You cannot trust the message he is preaching. That's what's happened here. This common and minor issue has blown up into a huge, huge thing. So who is saying this? Well, 
The so-called super apostles are the ones that are saying this. The false teachers in Corinth are the ones that are saying this. They are the direct actors in this situation. But we know that it's the enemy, the devil, Satan himself who is behind all of this. Why? Why would Satan use these false teachers to cast doubt on Paul's character, Paul's integrity, Paul's trustworthiness, Paul's faithfulness, Paul's message? Why would this happen? Because he knows that if he can convince the people that Paul cannot be trusted, he can move them further away from the truth, further away from the gospel. Ultimately, he can move them away from God, whom Paul is preaching. What's going on here is the enemy has capitalized on this common and minor disruption to achieve the exact opposite of Paul's goal for the church that we looked at last week. Look at it in 2 Corinthians 1, the end of verse 13. He says, I hope that you will understand until the end. I hope that you will understand fully or completely. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, just as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. You remember last week we talked about this. The goal that Paul is working toward is mutual boasting. That the Corinthians would boast in him and that he would boast in them at the day of the Lord Jesus. And that they would grow together in their understanding of each other. And of the message of the gospel. Paul's goal, in other words, is unity. And that's a good goal for the local church, right? Because it's Jesus' goal for the local church. If Paul is seeking after the unity of the local church, he is, he is seeking exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ desires for the local church. In fact, he prays for us along those lines. In, in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, just before his crucifixion, Jesus, praying to the Father, says in verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. You, you, you catch that? He's praying to the Father that we would be together. Why? So that the world will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the deliverer. He doesn't just say it once, he says it twice. Look at verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. Jesus is praying three times here. In just a couple of verses, he prays for our unity, our oneness. And twice he gives the purpose, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Paul is pursuing unity in the local church. Jesus desires unity for the lo local church, and the enemy hates that and opposes it at every single opportunity. Friends, I believe that this kind of escalated disruption happens all the time in the church. I believe it happens all the time in this church. There's a minor disappointment. There's an unmet expectation that may have been an unreal expectation in the first place. And that is used as an excuse to create distance. It's used as an excuse to leave the church. It's used as an excuse to doubt the truth of the gospel, perhaps even to leave the faith. That's the way it goes. People get super offended by some little thing, often making no effort to notice all the other things that have gone on, often having no ears for the explanation. In the church, molehills are made into mountains all the time. In the church, disappointments lead to divisions, which often lead to death. 
Disappointments lead to divisions, which will eventually lead to death. We see this all the time. If you don't see it, you're you're not paying attention. This happens all the time, and the enemy is behind it. So how do we fix it? This is what I want us to consider for a minute. How do we fix this? How do we fix these disappointments leading to division, leading to death? How do we fix this? How do we keep a minor and common disruption from becoming a major and destructive event? That's what I want to spend some time on today. How do we prevent that from happening? Well, first thing we do is we recognize. We recognize. We recognize that disappointments are inevitable. I will say we do not fix this by ensuring that no one is ever disappointed. Because that will never happen. That will never, ever happen. You will be disappointed at some point at First Baptist Church. In fact, maybe we put that on the marquee. Come to First Baptist Church, you will surely be disappointed. And if you come to First Baptist Church looking for disappointment, you will surely find it. And it will not take you long to find some disappointment in this family. You know why? Because we are all finite, limited, weak, and we are all fallen. And so disappointment is inevitable. We need to recognize that disappointments are inevitable. Secondly, we need to recognize that the devil is behind divisions. The devil is behind divisions. Recognize that. Who wants us to be divided? Who wants us to be against each other? Who wants us to be butting heads all the time? Who wants us to be separated and isolated? Who wants us to be disconnected? The enemy wants all of those things. Because that's when we are most susceptible to his destruction. But who wants us to be united? Who wants us to be in agreement? Who wants us to be loving, forgiving, together? Who wants us to be one? We already know the answer to this. We heard him say it. In fact, the Lord Jesus praying to the Father that we would be one, that we would be united, that we would be together. Let's recognize that disappointments are inevitable. Let's recognize that the devil is behind divisions. And let's recognize that his goal is death. Like this is, maybe you're not going to make this leap with me, but you must. That the enemy's goal is death. Jesus says it of him. The enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's what he's about. He is not just desiring that we would be at odds with each other. He he doesn't just want us to have friction and disagreement. He doesn't even just want us to be separated from one another. What he wants is for us to turn our backs on the truth of the gospel. What he wants is for us to be at odds with God, not with just each other. We've got to recognize that he came to steal and kill and destroy. And he does it through these divisions and disagreements and disappointments in the church. We all know people who have experienced something like that in the church and have left the faith. Not just left the local church to go to another local church, but have left the faith entirely. There's a danger here, and we must recognize. Secondly, we must remember. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, Paul raises two rhetorical questions. He says, Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what, what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? 
so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? He raises two rhetorical questions, both of which presume negative answers, which I think is rooted in their knowledge of his character, in the Corinthians' knowledge of Paul's character, which they know well, which they know well and is being challenged by these false teachers. Paul says first, was I vacillating? When was the last time you used that word? Was I vacillating? Some other translations say, was I fickle? Maybe a super modern translation would say, was I wishy-washy? No. Was Paul known to be a flip-flopper? Well, technically, yes, right? Technically, yes, because he used to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees and a persecutor of the church, right? He used to drag Christians off to their destruction, and now he's an evangelist. He's a missionary. And on some level, he is a flip-flopper, but only once. Because when Jesus changed his life, he had a total turnaround. And since then, he's been laser-focused, preaching the same message, the same truth, the same gospel with the same goal, to see the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. Was Paul known to be a flip-flopper? Absolutely not. He was converted, and then he preached the gospel to the end of his days. He also says, was I led by the flesh? Was I making decisions according to the flesh? Well, no. He already stated that in last week's text, right? Look at verse 12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we've conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Was Paul operating according to flesh? No. It especially doesn't make any sense given his resume in 2 Corinthians 11. Can you read 2 Corinthians 11 and think Paul is operating by the flesh? Which part of Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians 11 appeals to the flesh? The lashings from the Jews? Well, sign, sign me up for that. That sounds appealing. How about the shipwreck, the imprisonments, the sleepless nights, the exposure, the hunger, the thirst, the danger from his countrymen, or the internal pressure from the churches? Are those things that drive the flesh? Only if you're sick. And he was not sick. He was not driven by the flesh. Paul was not led by the flesh. And they know this. The people in Corinth know this. They know Paul better than this. But they're letting these false teachers distract them from what they know to be true. The Apostle Paul has proven his character to these people. And they should give him the benefit of the doubt. He's proven his character to them. And they should give him the benefit of the doubt. This is one of the benefits of long tenures in ministry. It's also one of the benefits of long-term church membership. Or at least it should be. It should work this way. The more we get to know each other, the more we extend to each other the benefit of the doubt. You know that nothing hurts more than long, faithful service, long, faithful relationship, that is forgotten because of one disappointment. And I'm thinking of this from my own perspective in leadership, because that's my life. But this applies across the life of the church. You've all experienced this as well. When time after time you serve and love and give and help, time after time you're patient and kind, understanding. And the one time it's a disappointment or a failure over. It's gone. It's undone. We've got to remember the 
proven character of our brothers and sisters. And we must give them the benefit of the doubt. That's what Paul is calling people to as he asks those questions. Was I flip-flopping? Was I led by the flesh? Is my yes, no, my no, yes? You know me better than this, right? We've got to recognize, we've got to remember, and then lastly, we've got to refocus. Some people think that Paul is taking an oath in verse 18. Look at what it says, verse 18. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. Some people think he's taking an oath there, but I think he's actually laying out the foundational principle for his whole defense. He says, God is faithful, and our word to you is not yes and no. In other words, Paul is saying that his trustworthiness is wrapped up in the trustworthiness of God. His trustworthiness is wrapped up in the trustworthiness of God for a few reasons that we're going to look at in the following verses. But the bigger idea, the big picture here, is that Paul is wanting these people ultimately to trust the Lord and not him. He recognizes that their doubt of him and their separation from him is driving them away from trusting the Lord. The issue is not that they would doubt him, but that in doubting him, they would doubt the Lord, and he does not want to see that happen. That's what he's shooting for, that they would trust the Lord. So why is his trustworthiness wrapped up in God's trustworthiness? Why does he argue it this way? How can he say, as God is faithful, in the same way God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no? Well, number one, because he preaches Christ and only Christ. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, for the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us. He says, when I came, I didn't preach myself. I didn't preach something that I made up. I wasn't in the spotlight. When I came to you, I preached Christ. Look, he says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4, in verse 5. He's got to spend a lot of time defending this. He says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. How can he say his trustworthiness is wrapped up in God's trustworthiness because he's only preached about Jesus? And the message about Jesus is the same, whether Paul was preaching it or Silas or Timothy. All the preaching was the same. He says that at the end of verse 19, by me and Silvanus and Timothy. Number one, is wrapped up in God's trustworthiness because he preaches Christ. Number two, because Christ is the fulfillment of every promise the Father has made. Read on. He says, not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Paul says, my trustworthiness is wrapped up in God's trustworthiness, and God's trustworthiness is unquestionable because every promise he has ever made is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we are preaching to you. The person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ are the great evidence of the faithfulness of God. All that he said he would do, he has done in Christ. We're thinking here about Old Testament prophecies. I was reading one scholar that said, conservatively, Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies in his earthly ministry. Conservatively. Other scholars would be like 400, 500 perhaps. But think about it. Just, just quickly think about the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his earthly ministry. Even just think about the Christmas story. We got a virgin giving birth in Bethlehem to a descendant of David. Like we don't even get through half the story and we've got several already, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies, and he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises as well. Not just prophecies, but promises. Think about this way back from the beginning. 
even on the day of the fall, there was a promise given. A promise given that is fulfilled in Christ. That the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the snake. And that is fulfilled in Christ. Look at Genesis 3. The father speaking to the snake says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That, that, the language doesn't really do it justice in, in English here, um, but that, that picture of him smashing the head of the serpent is the accurate picture. Serpent may bite him on the heel, but he will smash his head. And that is fulfilled in Christ. He is the promised seed of the woman who would come and defeat the snake. And he did it through his resurrection. There's also a promise in Genesis chapter 22 that God makes to Abraham when he says, In your seed all the nations of earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. To Abraham he says, In your seed all the nations of earth shall be blessed. You know who that's fulfilled in? Christ and the gospel that is to go to all nations and gather and gather a people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That is fulfilled in Christ. The promise of blessing to the whole world through the seed of Abraham is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. There's another promise in Deuteronomy 18 that God makes to Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen you shall listen to him. He makes it about Moses, through Moses, to the people that God will raise up another prophet like Moses who's even greater. You know who that is? That's Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Also in Joel chapter, chapter 2, verse 32, it says, It will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's sometimes how you have that memorized, but you don't know it's from Joel chapter 2. You know it's from Romans chapter 10. It's Paul quoting Joel chapter 2 with Jesus as a fulfillment of that promise. The Lord on whom we call in order to be saved, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you catch what Paul is saying here? All the promises that God has made are yes in Christ Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all the promises. God is absolutely trustworthy. Christ is the fulfillment of every promise the Father has ever made. I want to warn you. Not to abuse that text, to assume that every desire of yours is yes because of Jesus. Like that'd be a bad way to, to walk away from this verse that we're looking at. All his promises are yes. That means all my desires are yes in him. That's not what the text says. The text says that every promise of his is yes in Christ. Every promise of his, not every desire of yours, but every promise of his is yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfills all his promises. Jesus Christ fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies and all the Old Testament promises. Paul also argues that his trustworthiness is wrapped up in God's trustworthiness because Paul and the Corinthians together are together in the work that the triune God is doing. This is the last bit of the text, uh, verse 21. They, Paul and the Corinthians, have been affirmed, or the Corinthians have affirmed the gospel that Paul preached to the glory of God. They said yes to that. They said amen to the gospel that Paul preached. They were together in the message of the gospel. And together they are established. Paul and the Corinthians are established and anointed and sealed and given the spirit together. All of this happens together. 
And this is the stuff, this togetherness in the work that God is doing, not just in Paul's life and not just in the Corinthians' life, but together God is at work. This is the stuff that Paul wants them to grow in their understanding of that he said last week in verse 13. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand fully, completely, till the end, just as you also did partially understand us, that we are your reason to boast and you are ours also in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's that togetherness that Paul wants them to grow in. And so he reminds them of it in this text to say, we're, we're together in the work that God is doing. I preached a gospel to you and you said amen to it and embraced that gospel. And we are being established together in that gospel. And we're growing in that gospel and we're sealed in that gospel. And the spirit is given to us as a pledge of what is to come. But the false teachers are wanting the Corinthians to turn their backs on Paul because they know that turning their backs on Paul means turning their backs on the truth of Paul's message. They know that that means turning their backs on the Lord himself. This is what the enemy wants to see here, too. The enemy does not just desire us to turn our backs on each other. He wants us to turn our backs on the Lord. And if he can get us to turn our backs on each other, it's one step toward turning our backs on the Lord. And that's why it's so serious. That's why the unity of the church is so serious. Because eternity is at stake. I'm not trying to argue, oh, if you leave this church, you're going to go to hell. That's not what I'm trying to argue. I'm trying to argue that if, that if the enemy can get you to turn your backs on your brothers and sisters, that's one step toward him getting you to turn your back on the Lord himself. And that's why it's so important that we stay together. That's why this text is heavy. And I believe it is applicable to us in this room. And there are two things we want to do. Two things we want to remember as we seek to apply this text to our lives. Number one, we want to remember that God is faithful. This text is primarily about him. Do you catch how quickly Paul, in his defense of his integrity and his trustworthiness, actually defends God's integrity and God's trustworthiness? Did you catch how quickly he kind of stopped talking about him and them and started talking about God? God who keeps all of his promises. God whose word can be trusted. God, this text is all about him. And so we don't want to miss that. We don't want to miss that and just think it's about our relationship with each other. This is a text that is extolling, lifting up, praising the Lord for his great faithfulness. That's why it's good that we sing, great is your faithfulness, O God, my Father. There's no shadow of turning with you. We need to remember that. We need to remember that God is faithful, that he fulfills all of his promises in Christ. In Christ, all of his promises are fulfilled. This whole book is about God's global plan of redemption. About God redeeming a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This whole book is about that. And how does that happen? Through Jesus Christ. Only through Jesus Christ. Who died on the cross for our sins and rose again that we might be reconciled to God. That we might be forgiven of our sins. That we might be adopted into his family. That's good news, friends. It's good news that there is hope for the sinful man to have a relationship with the holy God. It only happens through Jesus. The promise is fulfilled. It is yes, it is amen in Christ alone. So repent and believe. Turn to Jesus today and experience the salvation that he offers. And if you're already enjoying that salvation, trust him. Trust him. Depend on him. Focus on him. Worship him. 
The enemy, the enemy is saying, no, 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 you can't trust him. No, 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 you can't depend on him. No, no, no. You don't need to worship him. He's let you down. I, w- I wonder how many people in Harrisburg today think God has let them down. He is faithful. He is good. He is kind. Even on your hardest day, he is faithful and good and kind. Focus on him and worship him for his faithfulness. God is faithful. Number two, Satan is crafty. Oh, he's crafty. He wants to sow mistrust and division amongst us, and he will use the slightest disappointment in that process. Can you testify to that? Like in your own life, that you've been slightly disappointed and it became a huge thing. Or that someone near you has been slightly disappointed and it became a huge thing. It happens all the time. He will use disappointments in the process of sowing mistrust and division, and so we have to resist him. Doesn't doesn't the Bible call us to resist him? To resist the devil? Like to stand firm in our resistance of him? Not to retreat and run away. Not to go hide in the corner. But to put on, as, as Jeff Roper likes to often remind me, put on the full armor of God and stand firm and resist him. How do we do that? Well, we strive for unity. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, being diligent, this is the key, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the call. How do we do that? Humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another. That that doesn't sound like getting super torqued about the tiniest disappointment, right? Sounds like the opposite of that. We resist the devil by striving for unity. And in our striving for unity, we must put on love. Listen to the logic of Colossians chapter 3. So, as those who have been chosen of God... Holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. How do we pursue the unity? How do we strive for unity? We put on love. The same kind of love that we have received from the Lord. We put that on for each other as well. And if we will do that, molehills stay molehills. And they're inevitable. They're everywhere. We just cannot let those become mountains so that we turn our backs on each other so that Satan gets his way in. And eventually, he wants to turn us from the Lord. He, he wants to drive us away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he wants us to die. So we fight. Fight with love to maintain unity. That's what Paul is looking for here. That's what the Lord Jesus prayed for. And that's what we must pursue as well. So how's this going to work? How's it going to work? This week, you're going to be disappointed. 
in this room, maybe even today, maybe even in this moment, you're like, man, I'm so hungry. And this is lasting so long. Or it's too warm in here or too cold in here. I don't know if I'm going to come back. This week, you will experience some little disappointment in your relationships, in this church. You've got a decision to make. You're going to let that become a big festering mess? You're going to let that divide? You're going to let that push you away? Or are you going to fight to maintain unity? We'll all have an opportunity to do it this week. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, we do recognize your faithfulness that you fulfill all your promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to trust you when we can't see so clearly. We want to depend on you. We want to focus on you. We want to worship you. You are faithful. You are trustworthy. Teach us that through this text today. And remind us that the enemy is crafty. And that he wants to sow mistrust and division. That he uses slight disappointments in the process. Lord, help us to resist his schemes. To strive for unity. To put on love as those who have been chosen by you as those who have been called that we would walk faithfully together for your glory Lord we do pray for men and women and boys and girls who don't know you they don't know your goodness they don't know your kindness they're still in their sins as we were but you reach down You opened our eyes to your holiness. You opened our eyes to our own sinfulness and our need for a Savior. You showed us that Christ is the only Savior. You taught us that he died in our place and rose again so that we could be forgiven and redeemed. You gave us faith to trust in Christ. You gave us repentance to turn away from sin. Oh, Lord, would you do the same for men and women and boys and girls in this room? Would you change their lives forever like you changed ours? Not just so... They'll be happy, not just for their good even in eternity, but for your glory forever and ever. We pray it in Jesus' name.